As we come this morning to Mark chapter 7, we're going to begin in verse 24. We're going to see three remarkable miracles of the Lord and see uh, what the Lord has to teach us through each one. Let's begin Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 24. And from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him. And she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. This is unusual in the ministry of Jesus. Because now he's left the region of Israel. You know, Jesus lived and, and did almost all of his ministry in a relatively small area. He didn't venture uh, forth out of much, uh, an area much larger than we would call Southern California. Never really went beyond there. But in this remarkable instance, he goes out of the bounds of Israel and he goes north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Friends, let me tell you something about that region. Those were Gentile cities. Those were not Israelite cities. Jesus was leaving the the, the promised land, the, the, the land that belonged to Israel, even though it was under Roman occupation at that time. And he went forth to these Gentile cities. Now, I think this is remarkable. Because if you remember last week when we were talking about how the disciples came under great criticism from the religious leaders because they would not observe the traditions of the elders when it came to ceremonial washings of the hands. And Jesus set forth a very important principle right there. He said that, you know, in the kingdom of God, we're not under the traditions of man. We're under the word of God. Well, by the traditions of man... No faithful Jewish man would go into these Gentile cities. No, no, not at all. But that was the tradition of man. It wasn't the command of God. You see, in the previous section of Mark chapter 7, Jesus showed that there's no distinction between clean and unclean foods. And here now, in the second part of Mark chapter 7, he's really saying that there's no difference between clean and unclean people. Just as much as a faithful Jewish person of that day, he would never soil his lips with the forbidden food in the same way he'd never soil his life by contact with an unclean Gentile. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to be bound by these traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. And at the same time you read there in verse 24, it says that he wanted no one to know it. And you think, well, Jesus, what are you doing here? Are, are you being, doing this on the sly? You know, you're, you're doing something that you kind of know is breaking the rules, but you don't want anybody to know it? Well, why is that? Well, it could have been that Jesus didn't want to needlessly offend people, but I think there's probably a bigger reason. He wanted a break. He wanted a rest. Maybe he thought the only reason, the only way he could get away from the huge multitudes that were following him all around Israel was to go north to these Gentile cities where he wouldn't be so well known. And maybe there he could shut himself up in a house, he and his disciples, and they wouldn't be bothered. There wouldn't be literally hundreds, if not thousands of people crowding around him, everybody wanting a special touch from Jesus. He said, I and my disciples, we need a break. So they went up. But you know what's beautiful about it? Do you see the very end of verse 24? He could not be hidden. Isn't that beautiful about Jesus Christ? 
He cannot be hidden. It's a glorious principle. Jesus cannot be hidden. Anytime Jesus is present at all, he finds a way to touch lives because he cannot be hidden. I remember years ago, there was a disgraceful movie made about the life of Jesus by a famous director. And when this movie was made, and it was the Christians were in an uproar. Because they said, this, this movie blasphemes Jesus. This is not a good movie. It, it shows such a disgraceful spin on, on the life and on the character and the nature of Jesus. And I understand how people were upset with that movie. But you know what's interesting about it? Is that, uh, that even though Christians got excited and picketed and tried to get the movie, not, when the movie got out there, there are many, many stories of people who said, you know, that's Jesus. I, I should read in the Bible about this guy. You know, and Jesus was put forth just a little bit, but the real Jesus couldn't be hidden. Now, I don't think that excuses the man who made the movie. I don't think that excuses the people who defame and disgrace the nature and the character of Jesus. But I think it's just marvelous how Jesus cannot be hidden. Even when people want to mock him, even when people want to criticize him, the glory of Jesus still finds a way to get through. You cannot hide Jesus Christ. He's going to show his power. He's going to show his glory. So there it was, he couldn't be hidden, and the the reason why he couldn't be hidden in this instance was that there was a woman determined to get something for Jesus uh, for the sake of her daughter. Look at it there, verse 25 again. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him. We don't know how she heard about him. This is not in Israel. This is not an area where people were really talking about Jesus, but somehow she heard about Jesus. And can you imagine, she comes and she sees Jesus walking down the street, maybe he was going to the market to get something for he and his disciples to eat, but she saw him. She runs, verse 25, she fell at his feet. And if you notice in verse 26, it says that she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. She asked, and she asked, and she asked, and she asked, and she kept asking and asking and asking. You know, I think this woman is a beautiful picture of an intercessor. You know what an intercessor is? It's someone who makes someone else's need their own. And they pray for someone else's need as if it were their own need. And this woman, her her daughter is sick. Her daughter is troubled. Her her daughter needs needs a touch from Jesus. And so she asks and she acts passionately. She asks repeatedly. Look at Jesus' response here in verse 27. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. How would you like it if you came to Jesus and asked him for something and that's how he responded to you? He says, nope, I'm not going to give you what you ask for. Because this is how it works. The children of Israel are like the little children, and I've come to minister to them. And ma'am, to put it bluntly, you're like one of the little dogs. And when the meal gets served, the meal gets put on the table for the children, not for the little dogs. And so the children are going to eat. And ma'am, I'm sorry, you don't really get any. You know, it's amazing that in this, this instance, Jesus seems to discourage the woman. He's reminding her that the little children, that is the Jewish people, get priority over the little dogs. You know, in that day, Jews often called Gentiles dogs in a very derogatory way. 
you know, in our mind today, the dog is sort of a noble animal. You know, man's best friend and all that. That's not how they thought of dogs back in the ancient world. They thought of those skinny, scrawny, mean-looking, mangy scavengers who would prowl the streets. And when a Jew called a Gentile a dog, he didn't mean man's best friend or Rin Tin Tin or Lassie. He meant you're a, a mangy, scroungy, uh, this scavenger person, and I don't want to have anything to do to you. Yet, in the, in the same way, I want you to notice something. Jesus did not use the normal word for dogs. He says right there in verse 27, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, it's this way in many different languages. That when you apply what's called in grammar the diminutive, that's expressing something as being little, it expresses affection. And so when Jesus said the little dogs, he's referring to like the dear little puppies. And so Jesus is calling the woman, putting her in the category of the dogs, yet he's softening it. He's making it dear. He's making it affectionate. He took the sting out of the word, is basically what you could say. Now, again, it's still an offense. How would you feel if you came to Jesus and he said this to you? How many of us would we reply back, who are you calling a dog, mister? I can't, my daughter's sick. And this is what I get from you? Thanks a lot, man. I'll go find some other savior to help my daughter. (laughs) Now, look at how the woman responds here in verse 28. It's marvelous. And she answered and said to him, yes, Lord. Even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this saying, Go your way, for the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Isn't that spectacular? I mean, the daughter was healed. But, but it was healed because that this woman did something really wonderful in her reply to Jesus. You know, her reply wasn't, Who are you calling a dog? Who reply was, see that in verse 28? Yes, Lord. And those two beautiful words to go together. Yes, Lord. And then she says, even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. I want you to notice, this woman did not debate Jesus' reference to the little dogs. She didn't say, oh, I'm no dog. Who are you calling a dog? Well, I've never been so insulted in my life. She said, Jesus... You say, I'm a dog? I'm a dog. Fine. But even the dogs can receive something from you, Jesus. Do you see the combination there? She, she accepted her low place before Jesus, and then she asked Jesus to meet her need at her low place. And there she received from Jesus. Friends, I want you to see this morning the power of coming to Jesus just like you are, and letting him make his promises true to those who are weak and unclean. If that woman would have responded with the heart that said, who are you calling a dog? Then she wouldn't have received from Jesus what her daughter needed. But she was humble, and she had a faith-filled submission before Jesus, and that really brought the victory in this situation. Friends, I want you to see that this woman combined something that we need to grab a hold of in our Christian life. And this is what she combined. Faith with humility. Now, she had humility, right? Oh, you say, I'm a dog, Jesus, fine. Then I'm a dog, fine, I'll take that. But she also had faith. 
But then Jesus, will you still give me something? Because even the little dogs get to eat the crumbs from the children's table. Just give me a crumb, Jesus. That's enough to heal my daughter. Faith, coupled with humility, has tremendous power before God. Now, many people only have one of those when they come to God. Some people have tremendous faith. They love to talk about faith, and you admire their faith. They believe God can do anything. Oh, they're just absolute, unshakable faith in God. But what they don't have is much humility. So sometimes when they come before God, it's like they're bossing him around. Lord, I believe you can do this, and so do it, Lord. Do it now. Well, I'll claim this. I'll I'll stand on this. And it's faith, faith, faith. And you admire their faith. But where's the humility? Then you have other folks. They major in humility and lack the faith. Oh, they're humble before God. Oh, Lord, I just pray that you don't kill me today. Because I know that I'm so sinful, Lord. And Father, just keep my world from somehow falling apart. And they hardly have the boldness to ask God for anything. Yes, they know their low place before God. Oh, God, I'm such a sinner today. I don't know if you'll even give me the breath to breathe, but I pray that you do, Lord. And they have the humility thing wired. But where's the faith? Now, what I would say to each one of these people, the person who has faith but lacks humility, or the person who has humility but lacks faith, I'd say, don't back off from your faith one bit. That that person who boldly trusts God and they believe God, for oh, that's wonderful. But friend, why don't you add to it some humility? Add a godly humility to it, to where you come to God full of faith, but at the same time recognizing your low place before him and how great he is, and how little you are. Let's never forget the most elementary lesson in theology. There's a God enthroned in the heavens, and you're not him. So have all the faith. Wonderful. But combine it with humility. And then you want to go to that brother or sister who majors in humility, don't you? And you don't want them to lose that. You don't want them to lose that sense of their low place before God because, friends, he's God and we're not. He's the creator. We're the creatures. He's the potter. We're the clay. He's the shepherd. We're the sheep. We want never to forget those things. At the same time, God loves it when we come to him with bold faith, doesn't he? He really does. He loves it when we come to him and say, well, Lord, you know, this is what your word said. Would you please perform it? I want to stand on the promises of your word, God. He loves that. It it gives God such a charge in heaven when his people take his word so seriously that they'll come and they'll pray the promises of his word. Friends, do you see how God wants to combine both of these things in our life? He wants you to be strong in faith and strong in humility. And this woman is maybe one of the most outstanding examples in the Bible of it. Jesus, you say I'm a dog? Well, sure, I'm a dog. That's fine. I'll take that low place. She might even bark a little bit. Yeah, I'm a dog, sure. Oh, but Jesus, even the dogs can receive something from you, and I want to receive something from you. Won't you give me just a little crumb? And Jesus, he was amazed. I imagine in verse 29, Jesus had a huge smile on his face when he said, for this saying, go your way, for the demon has gone out of your daughter, and her daughter was miraculously, beautifully healed. Friends, can we remember that before the Lord? Faith and humility, those two things prevail before God. Think of a couple passages of scripture that speak to that. In the book of Hebrews, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You got to have faith, right? 
But then how about this one? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when you combine the two, faith and humility, oh, you put yourself in a place to be blessed by God. Well, that's not the only great miracle Jesus did here. In verse 31, he does another one. It says, and again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And this wonderful. Here, this man's friends bring him to Jesus. This man has two problems. He's deaf and he can't speak correctly. He has an impediment in his speech. Now, many times they believed that this was due to some kind of demonic possession. And I'll tell you this, I believe that, that the, the, the specific scriptures here don't tell us that this man's particular case was necessarily a case of demonic possession. But I will tell you this, that in the ancient world, they thought that if a man was made mute or unable to speak by a demon, then the demon could not be cast out. This was because of their religious traditions. In their religious traditions, they had all the formulas for casting out demons. And all the formulas for casting out demons always began with the same thing. What's your name? Well, if the man had an impediment of speech, it was mute, and he couldn't tell you the name, well, then the demon won. Aren't you glad that Jesus isn't bound by those things? Aren't you glad that Jesus, well, how can I get him to tell me his name? Boy, this is just too hard. I don't know what to do here. Jesus wasn't bound by any of that. And so you know the men that brought this man to Jesus are going, this is a hard one. I don't know if you can handle this one, Jesus. But here he is anyway. Maybe you can do something with this man. And boy, could he do something. Look at it here, verse 33. Uh, He did something, all right. He took him aside from the multitude, put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. We're going to have a little healing service right after church. And we're going to follow the ministry of Jesus here. Well, can you imagine that? What a curious way to heal somebody. Sticks his fingers in his ears like that. I mean, th- you've got to picture this in your mind. Jesus really did this. It's just not words on a page. He re- stuck his finger in his ears, and then he spat. And let's see, he said, verse 33, he spat and touched his tongue. It, it's a li- it probably does not mean that he spat. And he spit right on his tongue. I can hardly say those words. It probably means that, well, I don't know why it's so awkward for me to say. It's just hard imagining Jesus doing this. Jesus spat on his, probably on his own hand and touched the man's tongue. <laughs> what are you doing, Jesus? You know, Jesus used many, many different ways of healing. Sometimes Jesus healed people with a word, didn't he? That's all he did. He just said a word and the person was healed. Sometimes Jesus healed someone in response to their faith. They came and they believed and Jesus said, go your way, your faith has made you whole. Sometimes Jesus healed in response to the faith of another person. I think of the men who lowered down the paralytic on the, on the stretcher in the room when Jesus was preaching. It says that Jesus looked at them, and it was because of their faith that Jesus healed the man. Sometimes Jesus healed those who came and asked him for a healing. Sometimes Jesus didn't even wait to be asked. He just walked up to somebody out of the blue and healed them. You want to see what I'm getting at? There was no formula to Jesus' healing. Oh, how we would love to do that. Oh, we want to make the formulas. Oh, you know, you just follow this five-step procedure, and boy, you'll get your healing from God every time. 
I think Jesus went out of his way to show that that's not how it worked. Even to the extent of fingers in the ears and spitting on the tongue and all of that. Jesus wanted to show that he would not be tied down to any one method. His power was not dependent on a method. His power was dependent on a person. And we ask ourselves, well, what? Jesus, why did you do this? Well, you know, a lot of people probably cared about this man. He had friends, didn't he? The friends brought this man. And don't you think the friends probably prayed for this man to be healed before? Don't you think they probably cared about him and did the best they could for him? But I bet no one ever stuck their fingers in this man's ears. I bet nobody ever spat on their hand and touched his tongue before. I think Jesus probably did this, this completely new thing to catch the man's attention. He could not catch his attention with words. He was deaf. And so he had to catch his attention with actions. By the way, how hard is it for Jesus to catch your attention? You know, sometimes Jesus can't catch our attention with words. We won't read the word. We won't listen to the word. We won't pay attention to the word. And sometimes I wonder, if Jesus can't get our attention with words, then what does he have to do to get our attention? Do you ever feel that sometimes Jesus is sticking his fingers in your ears and spitting on your tongue? Well, maybe you're not listening to what he says. Maybe that's the only way he can get get your attention. By the way, you should also know that in the thoughts of many people in that day, saliva had a curative effect. It was just thought in the customs and the teachings and the medical thinking of that day that saliva could have a curative effect. And I know Jesus didn't feel that there was anything magical in his saliva. Come on, we know that. But, but it was probably meaningful to the man. It, it probably to the man who's being healed, he thought, well, this is wonderful. This man's going to do something for me. Uh, the problem is with my ears. And so he stuck his finger in my ears. And the problem is with my tongue. And so he put saliva on my tongue. And so it was very meaningful to the man. Now, I want you to notice something else. This is very powerful in my mind. Look at it here, verse 34. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Isn't it amazing? Jesus sighed. You don't hear of that very often, do you? Jesus, after he stuck his fingers ears, after he touched his tongue with, with his own saliva, he sighed out. Jesus sighed. I think that sigh was an inward groan. It was the Lord's compassionate response to the the pain and the sorrow sin has brought into the world. He looked at this man and he said, Lord, look at what Adam has wrought. Look at the desperate condition of fallen humanity. Fallen humanity is deaf. They they can't hear. They, 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 They can't speak right. I think of when Isaiah the prophet was caught up into heaven and he saw this amazing vision of the Lord on his throne and the train of the Lord's robe filling the temple and all the angels around crying, glory, glory. Isaiah was taken aback and he said, warn to me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And and an angel brought a, a coal, a burning hot coal from the censer and he came and he touched the lips of Isaiah. Because he recognized how often we sin just through our lips, through what we say. 
And Jesus sighed. He thought about the deafness of humanity. Not only this man's literal deafness, but how we're all deaf to God. And he thought about the, 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 the impediment that we all have in the speech. Not, not just this man's impediment, but everybody has trouble speaking in ways that glorifies God. And so he sighed. He sighed out. And, and he prayed for the man in verse 35. Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he's done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Isn't that wonderful? They, they go around and say, this is amazing. Jesus, here, here you are, you, you, you healed this man, and look at it, he can hear perfectly now. He can speak perfectly. It's amazing what Jesus has done. And I love what they say about Jesus in verse 36. Did you see it? Excuse me, verse 37, where it says, They were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. Can't we say that about the work of Jesus? He's done all things well. Way to go, Jesus. You've done all things well. Whenever you see the workmanship of Jesus Christ, it looks beautiful. It looks gorgeous. There's never any problems with the workmanship of Jesus Christ. You know, I think about it, my friends. I think about the fact that the Bible says that Jesus created everything that has been created. You go to the ocean and you see the glory of the creation at the seaside. There it is. It's a beautiful, clear day. You can see the Channel Islands out on the horizon. You see the, the ocean. It's so beautiful. It's just a glassy, glassy surface on the ocean. And the birds are out there. And you can hear the squawk of the seagulls. And you see the shining sun in all of its glory. It's peeling off about four to six foot off from the point there. And it's just beautiful. You go to the mountains and you see the majesty of just the snow-capped peaks and reflecting in a beautiful mountain lake like glass. And you look around and you say, Lord, you know how to make things. You really do. You've done all things well, Jesus. You really have. You look at the intricacy of the human body and how every cell and chromosome, how it works together and what an amazing, complex machine even the simplest cell is. And you look and you say, you've done all things well, Lord Jesus. I've got something to tell you, friends. The, the, the work of God in redemption is far greater than the work of God in creation. What he's done in creation is impressive. What he's done in redemption is even greater. You look at our lives, or where we were in, in sin and rebellion against the Lord, and how it was the Lord who changed us. I mean, we didn't find him. He found us, and he touched our hearts, and he came to us, and he worked on us, and, and it's just a beautiful thing. And we look at his work, and you say, well, Lord, you've done all things well. You can really trust that in God. He does all things well, all things beautifully. So we see it in the story of the woman whose daughter was healed. We see it in the story of this man, this deaf mute who was healed. And finally, let's look for it now in the first part of Mark chapter 8 with the feeding of the 4,000. Verse 1, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they'll faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? 
Now, now wait a minute. Didn't we just see a few chapters back? Where was it? It it, it was in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus fed the 5,000. And the situation here is amazingly similar. There's there's a huge multitude. Jesus has been teaching them for three days. And you have a hungry multitude. You have a compassionate Jesus. And then he presents the dilemma to the disciples just as before. Well, guys, what do you think we should do? I, I feel bad for this multitude. Any suggestions from you? And the disciples say, Jesus, how can we satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Don't you think Jesus wanted to hear the disciples say something different? He wanted to hear the answer to this question. He wanted them to say, Jesus, you did this before. You can do it again. It's no problem for you, Jesus. Jesus wanted them to regard his past faithfulness as a promise to meet their present need. Friends, you understand that? That whenever God does something wonderful in your life, whenever he answers a prayer, whenever he glorifies himself, whenever he meets you in a special way, he wants you to take that and to regard it as a promise for the next time. So the next time when you're in a situation where you really need God to come through, you think, you know what, I remember he did it before. Well, he did it before, he can do it again. It's easy to criticize or even mock the disciples for their response, right? This is a story where we can have great fun at the disciples' expense. Oh, those stupid guys, they should have realized, I mean, it was just a few weeks before that Jesus did this. And then, then I look in the mirror, and I see how patient Jesus is with me when I lack faith. I see how patient Jesus is when I am just dense in understanding. And I see how patient Jesus is when he just sympathizes with my weaknesses. And it makes me sympathize with the disciples. It makes me, well, that's me right there. So look at how it happens here, verse 5. I, I thought I saw me before, but look, it's even more in verse 5. He, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Now, do you notice the difference here? In the feeding of the 5,000, They went out and they found out among the multitude how much food they had, and it wasn't much. They brought forth a boy who had, what was it, five loaves and a couple fish? Now, Jesus asked a different question to him this time. He asked the disciples, how many loaves do you have? In other words, Jesus says, come on here, disciples, pony up here. What do you guys have? Don't go asking the multitude for what they have. I want to know what you guys have. And so they all open up their lunchbox. And they say, well, here it is. We've got, as it says there in, in verse uh, 7, or excuse me, verse 5, uh, seven loaves that they had among them. And so Jesus says, well, that's enough to, to get a start with. And I can just see it as Jesus took the seven loaves from these guys. They're going, what, Jesus, wait a minute. That's my lunch. It's one thing when it's a little boy, fine, Okay. You know, he can get along for food without a day or an afternoon. But Jesus, that's my loaf you're messing around with here. Just, just give it to me, Jesus says. And he goes and he takes it. Verse 6, and he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. Isn't this beautiful? Jesus did what only he could do. The creative miracle. He took one of those seven loaves and he started breaking it and breaking it 
and breaking it and breaking it and breaking it and breaking it. And one loaf lasted several hundred people. Then he goes on to the next loaf. Lasted several hundred people. All in all, far more than 4,000 people were fed from seven loaves of bread. But I think it's wonderful how Jesus did what only he could do. That was the creative miracle. But he left it to the disciples to do what they could do. And that's distribute the bread. And you know, the disciples go and they, and they say, well, look, look what me and Jesus brought to you. And they could say that, couldn't they? Because Jesus let them have a hand in the work. He let them participate in it. And so there they are. They distribute all the bread. Now, I, I love this. This is so classic. Look at it here, verse 7. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he set them before them also. Now, I, I think this is great. The, the, the pattern that we seem to have here is Jesus says, Okay, guys, what, what do we have for food here? And he goes, Well, um... Here's seven loaves of bread, Jesus. Okay, great. Let me do that. So Jesus goes, he blesses the multiplied bread. And the disciples look and they see how Jesus feeds thousands of people with seven loaves of bread. And then they say, well, I guess it's safe to give them the fish too. Go ahead, give them the fish. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's the way it works. They're holding out on Jesus until he proves that he can do it with the bread. Oh, wow. Isn't that just like us? You know, Lord, I surrender all. I surrender all the bread. And then when I see you can do okay with the bread, well, all right, then I'll surrender all the fish. And then you wonder what else they had in their lunchbox that they wouldn't give up. Oh, isn't that just us, friends? And isn't it foolish? You can almost imagine Jesus going, yeah, I know here. I know. I know what else he got in that lunchbox. I can smell that fish from here, he says. But just you watch. They'll let you see what I can do with that bread. And oh, Jesus did it. Oh, he did it beautifully. And then he said, now, give me the fish, guys. Come on, bring it forward. And they did. And he multiplied the fish as well. And everybody got that to eight. Look at it here, verse eight. And so they ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Friends, these are huge baskets. Huge baskets. In the book of Acts, it says one time that Paul was trying to escape from a city and he was lowered down in a basket. The specific word for basket there describes a very large basket made out of, of heavy rope. That's the same word used here. These were big baskets full of bread. They took them all. Verse 9. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000 and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and came into the region of Dalmontia. And friends, I want you to see here that this shows us that God provides out of his abundance. God provides out of his riches. You never have to worry about there being a supply problem with God. He has plenty of it. And so where it seems to be a supply problem, you just say, well, Lord, you know, am I in obedience? Am I doing what you want me to do? Am I trusting you the right way? And then just trust that the Lord's going to work it all out. Now I want you to see one other thing here. Uh, As you read through the commentaries and read the the great Bible teachers and scholars and the the professors from this and that, you know, prestigious university, some scholars argue that this specific miracle never happened. 
They say, well, see, you have to understand that in those days they didn't write things down and actually they just confused the story. And some people said Jesus fed 5,000, other people said he said 4,000. And what Mark's doing is he's just tying together two separate uh, contrary oral traditions and he's bringing them down into different accounts. And when really it's just one occasion happened and it probably wasn't all that miraculous after all. Yes, yes. And they say, well, he obviously, this really didn't ever happen. It's just another retelling of the feeding of the 5,000 because, well, how could the disciples forget Jesus' previous work so quickly? Then I say, these men have never lived the Christian life. You know, even mature Christians who have experienced God's power and God's provision sometimes go on to act in unbelief. You know it's true, haven't you? You've seen it in yourself. I've seen it in me. It's not so surprising after all. You know, we're just like the disciples. Jesus does it. He does something glorious in our life. And we're so quick to forget it. Friends, I don't know how Satan is so effective in this, but he really does have a strategy. Every disappointment, every pain, every hurt, every bitterness... He wants it to be burned in your memory so that it's always there. Every blessing, every glorious meeting of your need, every remarkable example of God's provision in your life. He wants you to forget all about that, right? Let's turn it around on him. Let's just forget about the the, the difficulties and the pain. Let's just let them pass. Let's, Let's write the difficulties in dust And let's write the blessing in marble and let it stand before the Lord. And remember how faithful, how good, how wonderful he is to us. Friends, let's be like this woman who came to the Lord with this remarkable combination of faith and humility. You'll prevail before God with that. So 